Hi, I'm Stephanie Liu. And I'm Sophie Yoss. If you struggle to keep up with the ever-changing news cycle or you just aren't sure why you should care, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to The Outside In. We are going to talk about those pressing, prominent news stories that take up our news cycles for weeks and even months at a time. Plus, we're going to explain how those stories relate back to our campus here at Wake Forest. We'll be breaking down the big headlines and then talking to experts from Wake about the effects of those stories in our community. This week, we consider the constitutional right to abortion and the anticipated Supreme Court decision that could reverse or scale back Roe v. Wade. Welcome. If you could just start by telling us your name and what you do. I'm Katie Harriger, and I'm a professor in the Department of Politics and International Affairs, and I teach uh, constitutional law. Thank you. So I bet a lot of people are wondering why Roe v. Wade is being scrutinized now after 50 years. Well, it's being scrutinized <laughs> for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. So pretty much as soon as it was decided, anti-Roe kind of movement mobilized against it and has been working to try to get it overturned. And for a long time, the focus was on, at the national level, really in two places. One is that pushback has fundamentally changed the whole process by which we select Supreme Court justices. And when Republican presidents were in charge, it was sort of understood that they were looking for people who they thought would vote against Roe versus Wade. So it's not new in terms of national politics for this to be an issue. I think the reason it's got so much focus now is that because of the turnover on the court and because there is a strong Republican-pointed majority on the court, there's hope in state legislatures and so a lot more activity in state legislatures mm -hmm. that think we may have the court we want now, but first we have to pass a law that actually directly challenges Roe versus Wade and then we'll see what happens. So that's where we are now. Right. So there's a lot more activity at the state level. So how will Roe v. Wade be evaluated through a case like Dobbs First Jackson Women's Health Organization? So this is an example of a case based on a state law that is a direct challenge to both Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the more recent decision since Roe versus Wade. But the key will be, is this placing an undue burden on the woman in terms of the exercise of her right? So in that case, they upheld essential holding of Roe that women had a right to make the decision to have an abortion prior to viability. But they said states have more regulations. So we're going to look at those regulations and I really say, is this going to impose an undue burden on a woman and her ability? The Mississippi case, the Texas case, are cases where they've passed state laws that directly challenge the viability question, like whether you can prohibit abortion prior to viability. These five-week, six-week ones are really based more on the notion of when you hear a heartbeat, and they're suggesting that the state has an interest in stopping it at that. I just heard that Oklahoma has just mm -hmm. passed a complete ban. Right. right? So it's that sta state, something, all this action that the state tells you, right, that they think they've got a court that will overturn it. So what forms does anti-abortion legislation look like? So there are several forms. One is this moving the point back earlier than viability. So that's one strategy that states have done. So moving it to the heartbeat point, for example. Another is regulating clinics in ways that make it impossible for them to continue to operate, which is another thing that Texas did, sort of imposing a lot of restrictions on clinics. It's much less expensive to have an abortion in a clinic than to have one in a hospital. Most women who go to have an abortion to a place go to a clinic 
not a hospital. You know, it is the case that 54% of abortions that happen now actually happen through the taking of a pill, which is a new development that has now had state legislatures looking at that because their attempt to stop it in their state has led to other states saying, you know, come to our state. And so they're trying to figure out ways to stop like cross border going to clinics, but also to stop importation of the pills or the prescription of the pills. It takes a lot of different forms and it's kind of a moving target. Right. So on that note, how do people pay for abortions? Is it through taxpayer dollars, insurance or combination? And what a ruling changing the Roe v. Wade precedent affect the cost of abortion? It gets paid for in lots of different ways, mostly not by public funds because while there's a prohibition against it at the federal level and a number of states have prohibitions against state dollars Mm -hmm. being used. It's basically up to insurance companies to decide. So if people have private insurance and their insurance company isn't obligated to pay for it. So probably most of them are being paid out of people's Roe versus Wade is is overturned or all these statutes are upheld, then the greatest burden will be what it was before Roe versus Wade, which will be on women who won't have easy access for whom it's difficult to travel to other places or for people who don't have access to transportation. It will be more like the pre-Roe kind of inequality. It's not like women weren't having abortions before Roe versus Wade, but well-off women had access to clinics in other places, other states or other countries. And poor women did not, and so they often resorted to what came to be called back alley abortions, but you know, unregulated market, right? Um, essentially, which was much more dangerous for their health, right? So, how did Planned Parenthood versus Casey affirm and alter the ruling of Roe v. Wade? Right. So it affirmed Roe v. Wade in the sense that it said that women do have a right. It's based on the due process clause, the liberty and the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment to make that decision um, for themselves prior to viability. And that the state's interest in a woman's health, which is an important state interest, could be exercised to make sure that she had access to a safe abortion, but not to prohibit use. Main way it altered Roe versus Wade is that Roe versus Wade had what was called a trimester approach, sort of when the state's interest kicked in. So it would be like in the first trimester, the woman's right is predominant and the state can only regulate to the sense that it makes you know gives healthy access like basically the interest in the woman's health Mm -hmm. is the dominant state interest in the second trimester they could regulate in around health issues so at the time that roe versus wade was decided there weren't a lot of clinics for example it was a much more sort of intrusive sometimes dangerous kind of operation for women so the sort of understanding was in that second trimester again to protect the woman's health you might have some regulations about, for example, where Mm -hmm. abortion could be performed. And then in the third trimester, at that time, in 1972, the point of viability for a fetus was, you know, at the third trimester. Science was not where it is today in terms of surviving outside of the womb. So at that point, the state's interest in potential life became dominant and they could prohibit it, except in cases of like the woman's health. Mm -hmm. So that was called the trimester approach. Planned Parenthood versus Casey said that doesn't make sense anymore because the safety of abortion for women, you know, moving forward closer to viability and the point of viability is moving backwards. You know, at some point, Justice O'Connor said in another decision, they're on a collision course with themselves. (laughs) And so the main thing was they threw out the trimester approach. And they basically said the state's interests are there 
throughout. But there's a point at which, and that point should be viability, where the state's interests override the woman's interests. So their argument was that still leaves women enough time to exercise their right, but it acknowledges the states. So essentially the question is then, if we look at any state regulation, does it impose an undue burden? Which is this. So that's a new test from Roe versus Wade. And if it's an undue burden, which means one that would have the like purpose or effect of keeping her from exercising her right. So in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, for example, there were a whole bunch of different regulations that Pennsylvania had at that time. And in that case, a majority of the court upheld almost all of them. So it upheld the waiting period, it upheld the informed consent documents. Mm -hmm. The one it struck down as being an example of an undue burden was the requirement that a woman who was married get the signature of her husband. And they struck that down because they said, if a woman's coming without telling her husband, it's probably because there's domestic abuse or some significant reason. And that requirement could actually keep her from being able to exercise her right. So one last question before we turn to a more general look at the topic. If Roe v. Wade is overturned or scaled back, what will happen to cases like Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which held that abortion laws creating an undue burden on women were unconstitutional? So it depends on what the court decides. <laughs> I think really anybody who pays much attention to this thinks some change is coming. question is just, as your question suggests, is it going to be an outright overturning of Roe versus Wade in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, or is it going to be saying women have interests, like so if you had an absolute ban that made no exception for women's health, for example, like that would be considered unreasonable act by the state. Everybody thinks change is coming. The question is just whether you're going to give states a lot more leeway, but still draw a line at some point that says you can't have an absolute ban. So like Oklahoma's might be the only one that can't stand, but five weeks is still time. So you, could, you might still have some remnant of the right with a lot more room for states to make it difficult. And so in that circumstance, like the Texas or the Mississippi one might be upheld and the Oklahoma one not because they still allow abortion in the first five weeks. Abortion rights people would say a lot of people don't know in that period of time that they're actually pregnant, so that's not very helpful that it's the equivalent. But so that's one possibility is that there's still some remnant of a right there, but it's much more room for states to act. Then you're going to have states, like there are already states, California and Connecticut most recently, I think, where they've actually passed legislation allowing women from other states to come and mm. have abortions in their state. So, you know, it's American federalism that works, right? <laughs> is that, that states where you have a different political climate are actually taking steps to try to shore up abortion rights in their state. So then you're going to have this patchwork, mm -hmm. which was, again, what was happening pre-Roe. If Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood are completely struck down, that means they're saying there's no right privacy that protects the right to make that decision. That has way bigger consequences. Not that that's not a huge consequence for women and reproductive freedom, but it's also a whole other set of cases that have to do with a marriage and criminalization of homosexual sodomy and those sorts of things that are based on a right of privacy too. So then the question is, is that right going to be eroded if Roe is overturned? So there's definitely people on the court today, but the question is that everybody, or even a majority, who think the whole concept of a right of privacy is bogus. Whether that's a majority that would go that far, I think is another question. What seems more likely is that they would say something like, Roe was wrong in assuming that right is expansive enough to include this decision. So I think there's a range of things that could happen. But worst case scenario for people who are concerned about reproductive rights would be that Roe is overturned and then you would have states where abortion is legal and safe and you'll have states where it's not. 
there's nobody who's arguing on the court right now, at least, or has made the argument yet, I guess I should say. <laughs> you never um, know. <laughs> <laughs> the right to life organizations, one of their other strategies had been to try to get the Constitution amended to actually say that life begins at conception and that therefore the part of the Constitution that says you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process actually applies to the fetus. That has not ever been the legal position of the court. So even among those who don't like Roe, it's always been between, is this a fundamental right that's protected by the federal constitution and limits what states can do? Or is this something you should leave up to states so that, you know, it's a matter of social policy that should be left to the states and there's no sort of constitutional basis for the right. Mm -hmm. Those are really great insights. Pivoting to a bigger picture perspective, Supreme Justices are supposed to be above politics, but people expect justices to vote in a predictable party-line fashion. Was it always this way? And if not, how has Roe v. Wade changed that? So there's a whole debate among legal scholars on this question of whether it's always been that way. But I would say the majority of political scientists who study the court think it has always been that way. But there was less awareness of the consequences of that, in part because the court was less important, maybe as an institution. Certainly in the 20th century, starting the first sort of big battle about the court happens in Europe, the Depression, and, the, and so it had nothing to do with individual rights. It was basically a battle between the court and the president and the Congress over whether government could regulate business and regulate the economy in the way that they were doing coming out of that. From that point on, there was like more awareness that it mattered who was on the court. Mm. <laughs> the first televised Supreme Court nomination was actually Sandra Day O'Connor in 1980. You know, so before that, it was still like the level of awareness of politicized nature of the appointment process was still kind of not that many people aware of it, paying that much attention to it because it wasn't televised. And so people just didn't have access. So I really do think Roe versus Wade, it wasn't really the beginning of it, but from that point on, abortion has consumed the a nomination process and our two parties are so polarized on that question which is another thing abortion was not initially so clearly partisanly polarized mm -hmm. so when Roe versus Wade was decided there were Republicans and Democrats on both sides and the thing with Supreme Court justices is that they've come up with this way of saying well I can't answer that question because that will become before me and they can be pretty sure it's gonna mm -hmm. come before them and when Planned Parenthood versus Casey was decided, everybody thought, okay, the Republicans have a majority now. Uh, Roe is gone. And there had been efforts to get them to do it. And in the end, Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, and Justice Souter, all of whom had been appointed by Republicans, were the ones that upheld the central. It's not completely predictable. So does one's political view matter? Yeah, there's pretty overwhelming evidence it does. It certainly matters in terms of who gets nominated. Presidents are making predictions mm -hmm. right, about how people are going to vote. But justices have life tenure once they get on the court, so they can't like lose their job like a, somebody in Congress can mm -hmm. <laughs> next time the election comes around. And so they do show more independence than just sort of rough assumption that if you're a Republican, you're going to vote this way, and you're a Democrat, you're going to vote this way, assumes, right? That they're, it's more complex. And people like Chief Justice Roberts, for example, who's clearly a Republican and is quite conservative on some issues, has also been very concerned that the court not be perceived as being just political. That, okay, now there's a Republican majority, so therefore the Republicans are going to get everything they want. And that's operating on this question. That's what was operating on that question of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that's why some people think that it'll be something more narrow, that it won't be like this sweeping all the way back to row, it's all gone. But the interim step would be to say, we don't see anything wrong with the Mississippi step.
but that doesn't mean that there's no right of the woman, but the state can make it harder. So has the addition of Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh changed those expectations for anti-abortion legislation, or? Yes, okay. absolutely. <laughs> yes, so that's think, an easy one. <laughs> yes, I mean, if you chart how much legislation is being passed, you can like see it going up yeah. <laughs> as that majority emerges. Mm-hmm. So a good example of how much more attention everybody's paying mm-hmm. to the court. Right. Um, the so state legislatures are giving the court test cases they need mm-hmm. if they want to <laughs> strike down Roe versus Wade. Will the confirmation or the expected confirmation of Judge Jackson affect the conservative leaning position of the court? No. <laughs> Because she's replacing Justice Breyer, who was a Democratic appointee and who was a justice that supported Roe versus Wade. So there's no change. The bigger change is the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's why there's so much hope, because you flipped a seat, mm-hmm. you flipped a person. So mm-hmm. if you've got some untrustworthy moderate among the Republicans, it doesn't matter as much. You know, if it's a six-person majority versus a five-person. So when is the Supreme Court ruling expected to come out? And as of now, what are people expecting it to be? So usually the most controversial decisions in a term are held till the end. And so if that pattern holds, it will be late June. And especially if there if there's debate and tension between those in the Republican majority about how far they go and you know, they have to write an opinion and everybody has to agree to it. Or if they don't agree to it, maybe they agree with the outcome, but they don't agree with the argument, then they write a concurring opinion or they write dissenting opinions and those all get circulated. So if it's going to be divisive, it takes time. And so usually the most anxiously awaited cases don't come out until very late June. The second part of your question was, and what's going to happen? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Except that I think at minimum there'll be some erosion of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The oral arguments suggested that the Republicans on the court are skeptical about Mm -hmm. the sort of point of viability as a legitimate line-drawing exercise. And so, as I said, best-case scenario for people who believe in reproductive rights and Roe versus Wade is that they don't, like, outright overturn it, but they give states a lot more room to operate. And worst case scenario for that group is that they just strike it up and it's all gone. So in terms of how these decisions will affect the lives of Wake Forest students, do you think civic engagement matters in times like these when the result is not decided by a group of voters, but by mm-hmm. Supreme Court justices? Mm-hmm. Yes, because I think the reason the court's makeup has changed and therefore is because people got involved in politics. <laughs> anti-abortion forces went to the streets, right? And they got engaged and they held the feet to the fire of Republican nominees. Um, So yeah, (laughs) it matters. And I would say politics always matters to the court, even though we think of the court as supposed to be above politics, it's still politicians who put people on the court. And it's politicians who write state legislation. So the other thing is, as I said, I feel confident the Supreme Court is not gonna say abortion should be illegal everywhere. Right. They're basically going to say it's up to states. And so then activists need to get involved with their state politics and what their state policy is. That's a somewhat more optimistic note to leave off on than I guess that we can do something about this and we can get involved. Yeah. So I say more involved in state politics, but also lots of people, but young people in particular, don't tend to pay attention to off-year elections. They just show up for presidential elections. Off-year elections matter in terms of who controls the Senate. Who controls the Senate matters in terms of who gets appointed to the Supreme Court. 
you know, Justice Jackson would not be getting confirmed this week if Republicans control the Senate, even if we have a, a Democratic president. I think there's too little attention to congressional elections and there's too little attention to state politics. And that's really where people have, have to pay attention. Great. Well, thank you so much. Okay. That wraps up all of our questions. You're welcome. That's it. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more resources on this topic and ways to help, check out our show notes. See you next time on The Outside In.